Welcome back to the Uncharted Podcast. This is Poya. Today's guest is Jay Gaines, who's the CMO of AgentSync. Jay previously was at Four Stars, both serious decision. During today's episode, we talk about parenting styles. In addition to that, we talk about how sales could be a great stepping stone for those that want to accidentally or intentionally pursue a career in marketing. And most importantly, we also talk about what Jay looks for when he's looking to hire marketing professionals. And since we're in the conversation of marketing, I want to thank our sponsor, Marpipe. I think Jay, as well as myself and Robbie, can all agree when it comes to advertisement on Facebook, some of us don't always know what we're doing. And the, the good news for you today is Marpipe allows you to not only do Facebook advertising, but do it with data-driven decisions. For all of the organizations I support, I now recommend Marpipe because it allows them to maximize their spend on Facebook. If you're spending $25,000 on Facebook advertisement per month, it is a no-brainer. So what are you waiting for? There is a reason Marpipe works with companies that are spending tens of thousands on Facebook to brands as large as Mars to be equipped. Business Insider calls Marpipe the money ball of ad creators. So book a free demo at marpipe.com slash uncharted right now and get a free $2,000 credit, but only until December 31st. Sign up for your free demo and get a free $2,000 credit at marpipe.com slash uncharted. That's spelled M-A-R-P-I-P-E.com slash U-N-C-H-A-R-T-E-D. Now through the end of the year, marpipe.com slash uncharted. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Uncharted Podcast. We've got an exciting guest joining us today, um, Jay Gaines, the head of marketing from none other than Agent Sync. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Robbie. It's good to be here. Yeah, awesome. So, Jay, we always love to kind of start by asking, tell us what it was like where you grew up. Um, what was where are you from, uh, and, and what what was it like there? Yeah, so I grew up in Connecticut, in uh, Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is the county closest to Manhattan. So New York City played a huge part in my childhood. We were close enough that we were in there all the time. And I grew up in a neighborhood full of kids. So I was part of like a BMX bike riding gang of kids who uh, spent most of our time in the woods and uh probably getting into more trouble than we should have, but it was a great way to grow up. Um, I remain friends with a lot of these kids to this day. And um, uh, I'm not going to date myself to say exactly when I grew up, but it was a time when they didn't call it free range parenting. It was just, you know, parenting that allowed their kids to kind of go off all day long and, and do what they did and kind of resolve their own conflicts, do their own thing, and then usually try to get home for dinner. Love it. And <laughs> I know you're, um, you're a father now um, of two. I am. And um, you're you're still in Connecticut, at least for the time being. Um, do you still subscribe to this notion of free range parenting? How, how have you incorporated the way you grew you grew up into how you go about parenting? So I do subscribe to it. I, you know, it was the way I grew up. So of course, it's the best way to grow up. Um, but I do believe that. In fact, it's funny. I listened to a podcast about this not too long ago. And I do believe that it was really healthy for me to be spending time unsupervised with other kids. And 
you know, I mentioned it briefly before, but this idea of resolving conflict is something that I learned how to do at a really young age, because there was an age range among the kids that I grew up with. And I was actually considered one of the little kids. I was on the younger end of the spectrum. So, you know, it was really creative time. We, like we built our own bikes. We built trails in the woods to ride on. We, uh, like I said, got into a little trouble here and there, but we kind of had to figure it out on our own. Very different from unsupervised, like very different from supervised play dates that are really structured and that kind of thing. Um, however, as much as I, you know, think it's a great way to parent and a great way to grow up, it wasn't exactly like that for my kids because they grew up in a different time and in a slightly different place. We live in a different town than I grew up in here in Connecticut. And the town I'm in now is a little bit more rural, more spread out. So kind of everybody's far apart. So there was more driving the kids back and forth rather than bike riding. Um, of course, nowadays, the kids all wear helmets um, <laughs> when they ride bikes, which is good. I'm all for that. Um, but more structured play dates. But still, I always encourage my kids like, get in the woods, play, be creative, have fun. And certainly over the summers, um, we did have kind of this scenario where they would kind of go out with friends uh, for the day. We didn't really know exactly where they were and what they were up to, but as long as they were home for dinner, it was all good. You know, the other factor that was very different was video games, right? Um, I'll never forget when my son was maybe 11 or 12 and I came home from work and I said, hey, what did you do today? He said, oh, I hung out with my friends all day today. And I was like, oh, that's great. Then I was talking to my wife and I said, oh, I hear Sawyer was out with friends all day. She said, no, not at all. He was here all day. So I talked to Sawyer again and Sawyer said, no, no, no. I meant online, you know, playing Call of Duty. Like right now. I was like, oh, that's a little different from what I grew up with. So, uh, yeah, it, I guess their childhoods weren't exactly like mine, but I encouraged them to be more like mine. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um and probably one of those things, it's, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, there's a little conflict internally. And how do I react to that? Like, I don't know enough about <laughs> it to be like, that's not okay. But in the same vein, um, I think pretty universally, most folks agree that kids spending time running around outside is a like healthy use of time. So it's, it's about and, and something that as, as a new dad and, and of a, of only a nine month old, that uh, I, I, I always like to get people's perspective on that. So that's, it's helpful. So, so fast forwarding a bit, move to New York city, I believe to go to Columbia um, yep. and go to university in the city and then jump into it. And I actually, one of the things that stood out to me, Jay, is you've, you've grown, I mean, you've done, you've done it all as a marketer, but actually you started in sales. Tell us about that. Like you start in sales, you do that for a while, and then you make the decision to go to marketing. How has that like influenced your worldview as a marketer? Yeah, good question. So I did start in sales. <clears throat> However, um, I didn't study business in college. My plan was to be an anthropologist. I wanted to live out of a tent my whole life and, you know, do field work and then maybe teach and write books. Uh, but then I fell in love and decided I actually wanted to make a living. So uh, sales seemed like the logical course for me. So my first job out of college was an inside sales job at a very large technology reseller. It was a multi-billion dollar company. I think it was about four mil, four billion in annual revenue, and a little bit more than half of that revenue was B two C revenue. Um, it was a catalog company, a company called Micro Warehouse. Um, so they had a huge computer uh, consumer business selling software and hardware to consumers. I was in the corporate division, uh, which uh, was headquartered here in Connecticut, and I was selling into uh, 
companies, uh, colleges and universities, um, hospitals, all kinds of stuff. So I did inside sales for a while. It was high pressure too. It was like a boiler room scenario. Every single month, your quota would increase and they tracked call volumes really closely and connect rates and the lengths of your conversations and all of those things. But I managed to do really well. And by the way, I've come to believe that that's one of the best jobs you can have straight out of college. It taught me a lot about how to talk to people. It taught me about persistence. It taught me how to deal with all kinds of rejection. I think I got hung up on more than half the time because it was a lot of cold outbound calling. Um, And it taught you how to kind of hit a target month after month um, relentlessly. And so I did that. And then I became an inside sales manager, um, which was a lot of fun. And uh, I had a team of probably six or seven inside sales reps, all quota carrying. And I'd be able to like, you know, tap into their phone calls from my office whenever I needed to and listen in on conversations and hear how they were doing. And uh, that's where I learned about gaming the system. I would literally tap into people's calls and sometimes they would be calling fax machines and you could hear like the whining in the background and they'd be talking away as if they were on a call just to show that they had, you know, were achieving their connect rates and dial rates. So I had to figure out how to manage through that. And that's also the first time I started managing people that were older than me um, because I had had a lot of success as an inside rep and then becoming a manager. I was managing a lot of people older than me. And then pretty quickly, I became a field sales rep, then a field sales manager. Um, And again, had success doing that. And my success as a field sales manager was honestly luck. I inherited an amazing team of salespeople um, who just crushed it. So in my first year as a field sales manager, my team um, had the best performance in the entire business on the B2B side of the business. So, and this is how I ended up in marketing. Um, So I'll I'll keep the story short, but had this great year. I was asked to speak at our annual kickoff meeting um, and talk about the success of my team and, and, and why we were so successful. So I get on stage. It was my first kind of big presentation in front of a couple thousand people and all of sales and all of marketing and the entire leadership and executive team is in the room. And I get up there and I start talking about my amazing team. And then I started talking about marketing. And I talked about how useless marketing was to us and how they were really unhelpful. And if we did ask for help, we usually didn't get what we needed. And uh, if they did help us, they oftentimes tried to take credit for our success. And um, as you can imagine, that didn't go over very well. I was very young. I was very cocky. Um, I had advanced quickly and I thought I was, you know, the best thing in the world. And I offended a lot of people uh, when I did that. Now, there was a problem at this company. And the problem was that the marketing team was primarily oriented around the B2C part of the business and really didn't know how to engage with the B2B sales organization. So uh, in very inappropriate ways, I highlighted that on stage in front of everybody. And then the next business day, my boss came to be, came to me and told me I had two options um, based on what I had said. I could leave the company or I could join marketing and help marketing figure out how to work better with the sales organization. So obviously I chose the latter and that's how I ended up in marketing. So I I joined this marketing team that uh, was not a fan of me. Of course, they were all in the room and I said these terrible things about their work, Um, but I joined them. And of course, very quickly, 
I kind of figured out, I said, wow, these people work really hard. They're trying to do their best, but they truly just don't understand um, what a B2B sales organization needs. So that was my first foray into kind of really trying to figure out how can I make marketing work well with sales? And then I spent a lot of my career kind of focused on that. And, and frankly, it's, um, it's always a challenge. I've learned a lot along the way, but uh, I'm proud of the success I had there because I really did help um, the company figure it out and build a much stronger working relationship, but also kind of an operational go-to-market process across sales and marketing. I, I don't even know where to uh, uh, start because there's so many things you said that resonate. Um, and I'll just quickly kind of why I say, so I started my career at a reseller during college, like the same exact inside. I supported three different field sales reps. Um, then I started Oracle, which as you may know, the inside sales versus field sales model is very, very, very brown. It's actually like one of the first companies that kind of rolled that out. And <laughs> I was at a company called Plato where I did the same thing, where I called out the marketing team. They're like, okay, you write the next ebook. The next thing you know, it took me a week to like write an ebook. So, um, but what I find fascinating in all of this is I'm sure over the years, you've built this empathy and this muscle and how to work better with sales leaders. And this is actually a question because I don't get the opportunity to ask two wonderful people that work alongside each other this question. And I would love to hear from you, Jay, first. How do you try building that trust that I think is critical when you join a new company uh, with your counterpart in sales? Like, what have you found to be uh, like a good tactical tip that other people can take away? And then, Robbie, I hope I hope you're ready for this because afterwards, I'm coming to you to find out what you think Jay has done well in his time at AgentSync uh, that has basically put that in fruition. So, anyway, Jay, go ahead. Yeah, good question. So I think there's a few things. And I should say I'm speaking from both my own experience as well as the experience of having been an advisor to a lot of marketing leaders at Sirius and Forrester um, with a goal of helping sales and marketing align um, more effectively and work together more effectively. So I have kind of this broad view of it. And what I've found has worked is a couple of things. Um, one is well, marketing can't be entirely a service organization to sales, meaning marketing can't orient itself around just responding to every ad hoc and random request from every rep in the company. Marketing does have an obligation to uh, service sales in the right ways. And marketing's biggest internal customer is the sales organization. So I think just acknowledging that and operating with that in mind goes a really long way. And I've known a lot of CMOs who have like pride around that and meaning that they like won't acknowledge that and admit that. Yes, sales and marketing are partners for sure, but that does not change the fact that sales is marketing's biggest internal customer. And marketing's primary goal in B2B specifically is to make the sales organization more productive. So just coming in with that attitude being focused on that, being curious and seeking ways to do that, talking to the sales leadership, but also talking to reps is like a really big deal. So for example, next week, I'm going to be in Denver. And one of the priorities on my list is to spend time in person with sales reps, but also spend time in person with uh, a guy on the team here named Samuel, who has been a very successful B, uh, you know, inside BDR, SDR type of person. 
and really dig in with Samuel because I know Sam, Samuel's had tons of conversations, has a lot of insight into what engages our target audiences, what converts those target audiences, and respecting that experience and knowledge and insight that sales has goes a really, really long way. The other things that I think are really important um, are to make marketing, and I've only been at AgentSync for a little over a month now, so I'm kind of in the very early stages of this, but making marketing a center of knowledge about our, not just our products, but our customers and our audiences as well. Too often I see marketing organizations that are really internally focused and don't actually talk to customers ever. And I feel like when that's the case, it's really hard for salespeople to respect um, the marketing function and the marketing people in general. So throughout my career, I've made a point of getting into the field myself, getting out to those industry conferences and trade shows, standing on the floor, having conversations. So literally just talking to salespeople, talking to customers is a big part of it. Um, and then of course, uh, getting demand right, right? I found that... Uh, Everything else aside, if you can come in and uh, start feed, feeding that sales team a good stream of high-quality leads over time, help them become more productive, uh, that goes a long way. If you get that right, um, everything else <laughs> tends to be pretty good. Um, it, it's table stakes. So if, if you're not doing that, um, as much as you might have aspirations to do all kinds of other things, you're not going to get permission as a marketing leader to do a lot of other things unless that's in place and working pretty well. The audience doesn't see this, but as soon as you said the words demand and lead, uh, I saw the big, big smile on Robbie's face. So uh, <laughs> I am I am sure Robbie could not agree more. But Robbie, this is a chance to compliment Jay. I'm really curious from your perspective. Um, a, I don't think you would have invited him to this show, but B, you've spoken very highly of the of the man. Uh, so I'd love to know like why you think Jay's done such an incredible job of building that trust relationship with you. Yeah. And, and before I, before I stroke Jay's ego, there's, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, a part of the conversation that I think really struck a chord around one of the patterns I think we see in, in one of our prior guests, actually, her name's Jen Abel. She's um, the co-founder at a kind of like a B2B SaaS consulting shop specifically focused on like early stage go-to-market um, called Jellyfish. And one of the things that she she points out a lot is how, you know, in the beginning for B2B SaaS businesses, it's all about founder-led sales. Like founders effectively have to prove product market fit by closing and selling, you know, the first call it 10, 20 customers, depending on, you know, the ACV and the sales cycle and everything. From there, oftentimes the instinct is to um, scale sales. And, and what gets ignored is like scaling marketing kind of in parallel. And, and this happens all the time where you'll hire a sales team, scale it up, and then everybody will kind of look around and be like, wait, we forgot to scale marketing at the same time. And so then you have a head of marketing who comes in and has you know, a, a, a job that has a lot of urgency behind it, right? And I think one of the things about those early stage sales environments is they're very nimble. They're very like you're iterating on every single call. You're changing the pitch. You're changing the persona. You're sort of a lot of it is based on art and, and not so much of it is based on science, I would say. And then when you have a head of marketing come in, it, it's an opportunity to to sort of put the playbook in what's in your brain onto paper and build a program and like a campaign around it that goes over 12 months instead of like, you know, 12 weeks. And I think one of the cool things, Jay, is, is you've you've come in and helped us think about that. And, and I loved one of the first things you said, or sorry, the last things you said 
about just getting out to conferences. One of the first things Jay did when he got here was, you know, second week, I think he's like, I'm going to get on a plane and join you guys at the Sila conference. And, you know, this is a conference of like very technical end users of our product who understand like granular details in a way that most people don't. And Jay's like, you know what, this is how I'm going to throw myself into this. And like, grow some empathy for our end users and who stand at the booth, given demos, given pitches and, um, and, and did the same thing like a week or so later. And we always kind of like to say our company doesn't exist for, really for any other reason than to serve our customers. Like the customers that we have are the reason that we are in business. And I think like um, it's been eye-opening, Jay, just kind of how much you've embraced that because um, you don't always necessarily see that. Like, I think, especially from like a seasoned marketing leader who's had success in the past, you often see, I'm going to take my playbook and I'm going to apply my playbook to this. And, um, I, I think I already know what these customers are like, like you're able to maybe like make some assumptions and cut some corners, but in your case, you didn't do that. You're like, I want to meet these people at where they are, which I thought was really interesting. And if I'm connecting the dots and maybe some audience members are going this way, the easiest thing is I think one of the advantages you have, you came from sales and moved over to marketing accidentally or intentionally, like whatever you want to call it, right? So how often do you put a focus on folks that you've hired that come from a sales background? Uh, I know there's folks like corporate bro and whatnot that have their jokes about folks that don't make it in sales, they move over to marketing. But I'm, I'm, I'm like some of the best leaders I've worked with actually at some point carry the bag. So they have that yeah. empathy for the clock starts at zero month after month, right? If you're, if you're doing it correctly. So, yeah, so that is a focus of mine. And um, I, I just like marketers who have sold before. I, I, again, it creates insight, it creates empathy, it creates understanding of the work we're trying to do together with sales. Um, you can't always find those people. And um, uh as Robbie mentioned, I came into Agent Sync at a point where the sales organization, and uh, again, I find product marketers are more likely to have a bit of a sales background than demand marketers, but I look for it in both places and elsewhere within marketing too. Um, but again, I do respect uh, the skill, experience, expertise of marketing. So I like pure marketers sometimes as well, because uh, uh, sometimes I find people are like, well, you know, marketing is just like writing some stuff, right? It's pretty straightforward. Um, but there is a real skill set that comes with experience and time that I look forward to. We'll be right back after a quick advertisement. When running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $75,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, -E, was created specifically for small businesses like you. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day, all for just $99 a month. That's month-to-month, -month, no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. Go to Bambi.com slash scale right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash scale. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot -E com slash scale. Love it. Jay, so one question maybe a bit um, out of left field. You were nominated for an Emmy this year. <laughs> um, yeah. 
this, this, so we've got sales skills, marketing skills, um, growing up in the woods skills. Tell us about the Emmy skills. Like, like what, like, how did you fall into a situation where you were, uh, nominated for an Emmy? Yeah. So, um, that is out of left field. I didn't expect that to come up. Um, it's interesting. I would say that was less about skills, although I guess there were some skills involved in it. And it's more about a way of life. It's a long story that I'm not going to get into um, in terms of how I ended up there. But the short version of that story is that um, I was trying to help out a friend. Um, and part of the way I live my life and this friend had been a colleague of mine at serious decisions who was trying to make his way into the movie industry and with a very specific purpose. And that purpose is to make a movie about his grandparents and it's an amazing story. And one of the first times I met this guy, and by the way, he was a sales rep and this actually links to what we're talking about. He was a sales rep at Sirius, and we got to know each other in the car going to meetings because I spent about half my time at Sirius in the field with our salespeople. So you just get to know people really well. And he told me this amazing story about his grandparents who were both in Auschwitz and were uh, two of the only surviving members of the family to get out of Auschwitz, lost each other after Auschwitz and found each other again. And it's this amazing, beautiful survival story, but also a story about this incredible family that emerged um, from these two people. And he said, I'm going to make a movie about this. And uh, we're in a car. I think, uh, I forget where we were, probably in the Bay Area. That's where he lived. And we we're on our way to a meeting. And part of me was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you'll make a movie about this. And then he started telling me about the fact that he had been kind of recording his grandparents, taking notes since he's like 13 years old and like preparing for this. And he said, you know, uh, I think Sirius will be my last job in this business. And then I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to move out to LA and I'm going to try to make this thing happen. And, uh, he did. And, uh, what he, in order to make the movie he wants to make, he has to establish himself in the movie industry first. He has to become a producer. He's got to get involved and that's his passion project. It'll come years down the line, but he got, uh, involved, found a mentor. This mentor brought a script to him. Uh, this friend of mine knows that I write a lot. He passed the script by me. I reviewed it. I gave feedback. Um, the writer of the uh, script liked my feedback. I started to get involved that way. Again, just in an effort to help my friend kind of establish himself a little bit. Um, went through multiple versions of that. And all of a sudden, it began to come together as a real project. I can't express how unlikely it it felt that this kind of really rough initial thing that I looked at eventually became an actual movie. Um, it took a very long period of time, but it became more and more real. All of a sudden, hey, we got Tessa Thompson to play the lead role. And oh, we got into Sundance, which is like amazing because, you know, 15,000 films are submitted and 1,500 get in. And then it got bought by Amazon Studios and then it got Emmy nominated. So it was this whole process. And frankly, along the way, I got so invested in it, um, in the project, but also in my friend and and him establishing himself um, that I actually invested in the film. And being a producer in Hollywood means you find money to help make movies happen. So I'm kind of really happy to say that I'm the first person who he ever got to invest a movie. And now he's working on seven different projects 
He's in the thick of it. He has his own production company called Three Mighty Lions. And uh, he's working on actually writing the script now for his parent, uh, grandparents' uh, film. And it's got a channel uh, to studios. And uh, I don't know when it will happen, but it will probably happen. So, so it's a long story, but it came out of this um, desire to help a friend who, interestingly, was a sales rep who I got to know really well as uh, CMO at Sirius. What a story. And the movie is Sylvie's Love for whoever yeah. wants to go check it out. So, uh, Jay, what an absolute pleasure having you on the show. If there's one theme for this, I think it's uh, you got to put in your work and put in your time in order to have empathy for for your next role. So, um, And I think you're, you're a perfect right. highlight of that. So thanks for coming on the show. Uh, before we say our goodbyes, the one last question we love to ask everybody is, if you could go to your younger days, this could be Columbia, this could be maybe when you're on stage roasting your marketing team, it could be, it could be any time you want to go back to. What piece of advice would you give your younger self? Oh, man. So much advice I give my younger self. I have managed to get to some level of success in life by uh, uh, failing a lot, but learning all along the way, right? Um, I think the the main advice um, that I would give myself, um, because it would have, I think, sped up, like it would have sped up my path to um, success, would have been to um, embrace my weaknesses, and the things I'm not good at. Um, it's taken me a long time in my career to understand that I am not good at everything. Um, and I spent way too long acting like I was. Um, but what I've learned, and especially the past you know, eight or 10 years, is that what makes me way better is surrounding myself with people who are good at the things that I'm not. And that requires admitting um, that I'm not good at some things. Um, sounds basic, but it's really true. I, I just spent way too much time trying to be great at things that I never was going to be great at instead of finding people who could augment me. And um, uh, now that I'm able to do that, I'm finding much more success and, by the way, a much better life in general. So. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it, embrace the weaknesses and delegate what you're not good at. Well, well said, Jay. Uh, for whoever's listening, if you want to reach out to Jay, we'll put his contact information in the show notes. Please feel free to reach out. Go learn a little more about Agent Sync. You never know. They're, they're growing like gangbusters. So you might even uh, be able to recruit uh, or bug uh, Robbie or uh, Jay or somebody for a job. So um Thank you both, gentlemen, and for the listeners, uh, have a great rest of your day. Until next time, be safe, be good, and catch you on the next episode. Thank you both. It was a lot of fun. I want to thank our sponsor, Marpipe. I think Jay, as well as myself and Robbie, can all agree when it comes to advertisement on Facebook, some of us don't always know what we're doing. And the, the good news for you today is Marpipe allows you to not only do Facebook advertising, but do it with data-driven decisions. For all of the organizations I support, I now recommend Marpipe because it allows them to maximize their spend on Facebook. If you're spending $25,000 on Facebook advertisement per month, it is a no-brainer. So what are you waiting for? There is a reason Marpipe works with companies that are spending tens of thousands on Facebook to brands as large as Mars to be equipped. Business Insider calls Marpipe the money ball of ad creators. So Book a free demo at marpipe.com slash uncharted right now and get a free $2,000 credit, but only until December 31st. Sign up for your free demo and get a free $2,000 credit at marpipe.com slash uncharted. That's spelled 
m-a-r-p-i-p-e.com slash u-n-c-h-a-r-t-e-d. Now through the end of the year, marpipe.com slash uncharted.